People of Israel were frustrated. They're in the desert. They're grumbling again, but this time they bring charges against Moses and ultimately against God. And we see that God's grace comes from often the hardest places. This sermon was originally recorded at Meadowview Elementary, July 21st, 2013. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. We are still in a sermon series from Exodus. I say still because it's been the whole summer. And someone just asked me yesterday, like, how long do sermon series usually go? And I could read between the lines. They said, this is so awesome, I never want it to end, just like Disney World. Uh, the reason we do this, usually our sermon series are shorter, but uh, in the summer I like to do uh, one kind of longer series to keep some continuity. A lot of you travel, I travel, and I think it's kind of a nice thing to come back to feel like, oh, I just missed everything. You don't like that. It's nice to know, like, okay, I still know what's going on at church. I think that's a positive thing. So we're still in the book of Exodus, and we're talking about the reason why we're looking at this book is we're trying to... Uh, get some of the nuances of the word of salvation. So every word has some complexity to it. And I'll give you an example, a simple word like blue. So think in your mind, what, what color blue? Think of the color blue. So here's a Pantone chart from, uh, and you're looking and you're thinking, which, which of these blues did you kind of identify with? I'm not going to ask you. This is only part of, this is half of the blue chart. So the salvation would be the same thing. If I say, think of the definition of salvation, not everyone here is picturing the exact same thing, I would guess, correct? I mean, most of us have some kind of idea. So the reason why we're going through the book of Exodus, the main reason, is to say, what are some of the nuances of the word salvation so we understand what, what does that even mean when we say salvation? So that's what we're going to be doing. And we're doing that through stories in the book of Exodus as we see how God brings liberation from the people. And ultimately, salvation is liberation. God, um, you can imagine, our default mode is to find um, our existence. Our default mode is to find um, our, um, I can't think of the word. Our default mode would be to find our significance. There we go. We can't find our significance into something besides God. So we, if God is not there, we have to find it in something. So you can find it in work. You can find it in how you look. You can find it in your money. You can find it in how hard you work. You can find it that you go to church every Sunday. You can say, I am significant. I'm, I, God should be happy with me. I feel okay with that. Well, to quote the theologian Tim Keller, you're only as durable, you only last as long as the thing you love the most. So if you love your looks the most, you're only going to be happy as long as that lasts. You can be happy, no doubt. If you love uh, sports, you're only as happy as your sports team wins, and then suddenly they're lousy for two decades in the 80s and all the way to the late 90s. I mean, just in theory. So you're only as happy as that lasts. You can be happy, but only as long as that lasts, unless you find significance in the Lord. So God says, I want to free you from this finding significance in other things, and I want you to find significance in me. This is God. This is part of the book of Exodus. So we see this again and again. The people are under the oppression of the Egyptians, and they want to be liberated. And God says, here you go. How long did that take? went pretty quick, right? I mean, they, there's the plagues and things like that. That took a while, maybe a week or something like that. But then we get to that uh, 10 days. I mean, there's 10 of them. So there wasn't two a days like football practice or something. So there's at least 10 days. And then they're, they're free. They cross the, uh, the Red Sea, and now they're free. They're free to go. But they don't even know what to do with it. They don't even know what this means. And God says, okay, sometimes when you free someone from slavery, that takes an instant, but it's actually a process before you know what that means for your daily life. So we spent some time last week talking about that. There's a process involved, and there's growth involved. And God says uh, in Romans, suffering leads to perseverance, which leads to character, right? This is a good thing. And for most part, do you agree with that? Does that make some sense? Are you happy with that? Have you seen that in your own life? I would guess you have. 
He wanted to go to school A, it didn't work out, and now you go to school B, and you're like, hey, that's cool. For minor things, this is awesome. This worked out. And uh, you look at, you, you wanted one car, and something fell through. You wanted something on Craigslist, and then you find something even better, right? Does this worked out for you? And that builds some character. Every one of us has like a thousand stories like that. Um, and I've got a couple. I'll give you a couple quick examples since my wife is here. She's here every week. But since my wife is here, I dated two people total in my whole life. Uh, one was just before my wife for two months, and then that fell through. And as a 15-year-old, I should have been devastated, right? Well, that same girl actually set me up with my wife, which I think turned out better, right? I mean, I think that worked out. So that's an example. Or um, I applied for college, and I've shared the same example with you. I wanted to go to the University of Wisconsin in Madison. I was all excited to be physical therapy and, and do this. It sounded awesome. And I didn't get in, which is like, I'm not saying I'm genius here, but I should have gotten in to a public school that has 40,000 people that go to it. And so I, my mom calls up, and my mom was being helicopter mom, and said, like, what's the deal? They said, well, you didn't have enough science credits because I didn't take chemistry in college, so I could take more languages, so possibly I could be a pastor. I've explained this before. And I think that worked out good. Now, you're not allowed to comment on that, but I think it worked out that I'm not a physical therapist and I'm a pastor, and, and I can look back, and that looks good. You all have a thousand stories like that, right? You thought one way, and then it went another direction. You're like, oh, I'm so glad that it went that way. Uh, we don't think you guys should still move, by the way. Yeah, so th there's a lot of things that work out like that. But what happens when you step back and you see stuff that's, like, really a big deal? I'm all for character building, you know, when, like, uh, you're late for something and it turns out better. I'm all for that. But what happens when someone dies that you love? Then you're like, whew, just character building. Are you guys all pumped about that? What happens if you lose a child? What happens when you see even corporate big things like 9-11 or the shooting in Aurora? I mean, we're all like that. Could you imagine going to the Aurora shooting and talking to one of the grieving parents and go, let me tell you something. Suffering leads to perseverance, which leads to character. You're going to be a better person in the end. I think you'd get punched, right? So our question is, have you ever been, not just little things, little things are okay, like when my car blows up and things like that, that's okay, you can get past that, but what happens when really big deals happen? When your marriage, it gets destroyed, or what happens when people you love betray you or there's death? A lot of times, instead of looking at ourselves, we want to say, God, I think this is your fault. And essentially, we're asking the question, God, what's the deal? Why are you doing this to me? I don't see any positive end. Well, you're not alone in that. And so we look at the people of Israel. Hit the wrong button, sorry. I'm going backwards. I don't know how. Megan, please save me. Thank you. It's like the clapper. You just kind of clap and it goes to the right spot. So the whole Israelite community sets out to the desert of uh, Zin. Some people say just so they don't say sin, but the desert of Zin. They're traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim. But there's no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, is this like new? Yeah, we're going to talk about this. It's like for crying out loud, people. Will you just back off a little bit? But the key word here is quarreled. We never see that before in other places. Most of the time it says they grumbled, which they do in the next verse. So don't worry. We're back to normal. Most of the time they're whining and they're complaining. But the key word here is grumbled. Grumbled, uh, one of the definitions for this word, rayim, is to bring formal charges against someone else. So it'd be like in court, you're saying, here's the deal. And this, you see, you have like mini courts in your house. If you have more than one kid, you have mini court all the time, right? The two kids, so you hear something and you run in there, you're like, what's, what's the deal? 
and one kid gives their confession, they bring formal charges, uh, Billy hit me, and then you say, what's your side of the story? And immediately bring judgment. You're like, we've got to cut this baby in half. Because, I mean, Solomon was smart. That's what you're supposed to do. So these formal charges come all the time. So if you don't believe me that they're bringing possibly formal charges against Moses, to basically say, listen, we're with you for a little bit here, but you're trying to kill us. Like, this is attempted murder that you're trying to do. What is one of the ways, um, if anyone listen to Louis L'Amour books? How is justice served? I shouldn't say listen. Some people probably even read Louis L'Amour books, but they, have, they do voices and stuff. It's awesome. So it, how, what is the way that justice is served in the West? Hanging. That's the way they do it. It's a hanging. So what's the way that we do it now? I'm not saying you went to see any of these things happen, but probably lethal injection, I would guess. I'm guessing here. And then we have electrocution. Do we still have electrocution? Death by electricity? Do we still have that? I don't know. what. We, but how did they do it in the Old Testament? So when you read through the Old Testament, how is it in a court that they're ready to bring judgment? How does death come? Stoning. I mean, everybody knows this. And there's a couple things. Keep in mind, we have not even got to the Ten Commandments yet. So this is part of their code. So keep in mind, when you think of Mount Sinai, these were not all brand new laws they'd never heard of. So they didn't get there and there's 600 laws. They're like, I've never heard. I'm not supposed to commit adultery. They're like, well, I've never heard of this. There would have been cultural things and God is codifying and make, being very specific. Here is the punishment for certain sins. If you speak blasphemy, what's supposed to happen? Stoning. And as a kid, just for kid's sake, I always thought the stoning meant they had these huge rocks, like two-man rocks, and they threw them at the person. It's really like smaller rocks that you can throw. So has anyone ever gone to a beach? This sounds very morbid at this point. But have you ever gone to a beach and found like uh, lake rocks or something like that you can throw? My brothers and I went camping, and we set up towers, and we had contests who could knock the rocks down. That's the kind of thing it is. And here's the idea. If we've got a mass of people like this, all with a stone, and someone has sinned, and now judgment is coming, you don't really know whose rock it is that killed the person. So there's a sense of collectively, here's the judgment that's coming, but you know it's not me as an individual. And so we see this a number of ways. Firing squad, that's another way that they do this. But in that time, one of the ways that they brought capital punishment was stoning, one of the main ways they brought stoning. And you might be asking yourself, well, why is it that Jesus then, who spoke blasphemy according to them, was not stoned? Because the Romans are in charge. At that point, the Romans are running the show, and they kill how the Romans kill, which is... Uh, uh, crucifixion. So we're back to this word. So they quarreled. So they brought formal charges against Moses saying, will you give us some water? And Moses says, why are you bringing these charges with me? I mean, I'm going to just paraphrase it. And why do you put the Lord to the test? Moses can read between the lines saying, you know, really here you're putting God on trial. But the people were thirsty for water there and they grumbled against Moses. Okay, we're back to whining again. And they said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt? Here's their charge to make us and our children and our livestock, they're even playing the livestock card here, to die of thirst. And so my, Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I going to do with these people? They're ready to stone me. Essentially, he's saying out to God, um, if you brought charges against me and I had this prayer, I said, God, I don't know what I'm going to do with this group of people. They want to electrocute me. They want to lethal inject me. This is the formal charge that they're saying. They, they say, Moses, it stops here. Here's our charge. We want death. <sighs> you ever get sick of these people? I'm not doing you the greatest favor of all time to just do little segments in the book of Exodus. Do you read the book of Exodus? 
and you read the book of Deuteronomy, there's like two themes, right? Israelites whine and God helps them. God's patience, I guess you could say, and the Israelites whining. God, we want to get out of our oppression, so God sends a leader. God, we're still in oppression, so he sends the ten plagues. God, we're going to die, so he opens the Red Sea. God, we want some water, so God sends water. God, we want some food. God sends food. Do you see this? God, we're afraid, so God sends defense. So we got two themes, maybe three themes. Um, God's patience, the Israelites whining, and the Israelites are idiots. Do you ever feel that way? I mean, am I the only one that you read this and you're like, really, people? Why is it that we're so comfortable? Why are we so relaxed as we see this story? And even as the army of the Egyptian is charging against them, and you're like, come on, people. Right? I mean, same thing. They get through the Red Sea, and they're there. They have no food. They're in the middle of the desert where they can't get any food. They got two million people. And we're like, give me a break. God just helped you before. Do you feel that way? Do you think maybe it's because we know how it works out in the end? You think maybe it's just because of the distance we have and we can look down and see like, hey, everything is fine? I think that has a lot to do with it. When you read the book of Exodus and when you read the book of Deuteronomy, we see this theme again and again and again. And really, like all scripture, it's like going into a room and you see like art on the wall and you're like, this is the ugliest painting I've ever seen in my whole life. And you realize it's like a mirror. That's kind of like the book of Deuteronomy. You read through it, and you're like, these people are morons. And then you realize, you know what, that's probably not all that far from my own life. And what I mean by that is when you're from a distance, everything looks clear. Amy and I and the kids went to climb Mount Massive. Anyone done 14ers? So you get ready to do the 14ers. And these are great. Some of them, like Grays and Tories, have, I think they took a bla- like a bulldozer, and they made the path. So you, if you get lost on that mountain, you would be like the Israelites in the book of Exodus, okay? But sometimes, though, we just went on Mount Massive. You're going, and the trail kind of looks like all the same. So I got a picture of some rocks, I think. It looks about like this. Can you see the trail there? It starts, and then very clearly, you can see it go right to the top, correct? So what happens is you spread out as a group, and my kids, I lead them on, because this is a long day. You're eight hours on this mountain, and you're going, and you're going, you're like, come on, Owen, you're the leader now. Keep marching, keep marching. I bet 15 times he started to go down the wrong path. He went down the wrong path, and I'm up top, and Amy was leading one time, and she's like, do I go left or right? How would I know which way she goes? If you're a little bit higher, just a little bit, you can say you've got to go to the right, because you can see the rest of the trail. And that's kind of like her own life. The people of Israel were right there at the ground level, and they had no perspective whatsoever. And I think sometimes we think, hey, we're a lot smarter than the Israelites. We've got all kinds of perspective on our own life. Well, then how is it that you freak out over everything? How is it that I freak out all the time? And some bad thing happens, and you're like, oh, I don't know what's going to happen here, and it's, oh, I don't know what's going to go. Do you think if someone was reading our story, they might have the same opinion of us? as they look at our life story and they made opinions like, yeah, look at that, he's freaking out and it's all going to work out fine. He's going to become a pastor. You know, I mean, don't you think the same thing? We are unable, we are unable to get perspective. And the sooner you grasp that idea, all we can ask is, Lord, can I just get a little bit of elevation to see how my life kind of plays out so I can see that these things are working. You're never going to have some bird's eye view and say like, everything is great. God, we just want a little bit of elevation. Why is it that it works that way? Well, it's simple. I mean, this is a simple thing as you talk in your own life. Uh, you remember anything that anyone has ever said that's bad against you or mean? Or do you guys just forgive and forget and they're like, high five, we're good to go? 
I'm guessing you can still think of words that people said to you on the playground like 35 years ago. I can still picture Camp Bird. So this is camp. I went to camp and I got on, uh, we were swimming with the guy and I said, hey, I'm Jared. And the guy goes, hi, Jared. So you can guess what my voice sounded like at that age. I didn't even know I had a high voice at that point. I'm like, what? I've got a high voice? So just imagine Petra's voice on a boy. So that, it's this high squeaky voice. I had no idea. I can still picture the person. I still know the person in this exact same thing. It's just like flashbacks, you know, like in the movies, in the Disney movies, when they flashback and they show the same scene and the same kid. That's exactly it. Why is it that we can't forget that stuff? They say 100 compliments before you can forget something. Is our spiritual memory the same way? How many times has God answered your prayers? Like 100,000. But which ones do you remember? The ones you said, God, this is what I need, and God didn't do it exactly the way you wanted it. Our spiritual memory for good things is like 15 minutes. But our spiritual memory when God has not looked out for us is a long time. And all we can ask is, God, I just need a little bit of elevation, just a little bit of elevation to see what's going on. The people of Israel needed a little bit of elevation. And so they come to God, they whine to God, and they say, God, we need some water here, and we're so mad, we want to bring charges, not really against Moses, but against God. And so what should God's response be at this point when a finite being says, God, I want you to answer to me? What right do we have to put God on trial? What right do we have to say, God, I want an answer from you? We'll put it in perspective. Uh, pretend you've got a five-year-old daughter, and uh, she's getting ready to go to the big birthday party where there's bouncy houses and all this cool stuff. And she's really excited. She's never told lies, and she's always been honest, and then blatantly tells the most obvious lie, thought out, no mistaking it, uh, just here's the lie, and you go, huh, now what do I do? You've got a couple options, right? Option one would be to like kind of sweep it under the rug and say, hey, you shouldn't do that anymore. Or you can say, listen, you're not going to that party tomorrow because you don't lie. And you could explain the consequences, right? I know this is difficult now, but long-term, you're going to be a better person, right? You could just sit down, right? You could just see the five-year-old nodding in agreement, and, and this is going to ruin relationships, and it's going to be hard to be close to people if you're a liar. The kid is not going to get it, are they? They're going to look at you like, so I can't go to the birthday party? You're the meanest mom or you're the meanest dad in the whole planet as they storm to their room. But... Are you laying some character foundation so that this kid does not grow up to be some character development? It's a hard, difficult thing so that they turn out to be someone better in the future. I think so. And I'm not saying that's a real example or anything like that. How much, how much more advanced is God over us than you over the wisdom of your five-year-old? You know, I don't know if I have a good answer for 9-11 or the fires that come. I don't know if I have a good answer for the Aurora shooting, but all I know is I'm a finite being, and God is infinite. And you know what we say? We say, God, I want you to answer to me. And here's the amazing thing. The people of Israel ask that, and God gives it to them. The Lord answered Moses, go out in front of the people and take with you some of the elders. God said, there's going to be a trial here. Get the elders who would stand, and kind of like the jury, and in your hand take the staff. So they wanted Moses to go on trial, and the staff, you ever read the Lord of the Flies? Who's in charge? Who has the power in the Lord of the Flies? The person who holds the 
conch, right? This is how it works. Same thing in ancient cultures. If you had the staff, that meant you had the power. I'm going to shoot ahead two slides, one slide. Roman world, um, this is called a, I just forgot the name, fascius. Uh, this is called a fascius. And, and what this is is it reads with this red cord in a hatchet. And the person who actually had authority to judge would walk around with this, which seems kind of crazy. It's just symbolic to say, I've got the power here, right? So go back here. God says, go out in front of the people and take with you some of the elders of the Lord. So we've got a trial going on, and the people are ready to lynch uh, Moses. Remember, they wanted to stone him to death. And he says, take in your hand the staff. So now Moses, though, is in charge. So the people had to be like, what is going on here? Okay, so Moses is in charge. The elders are along. And God says, I will stand before you there by the rock at Horeb. Who's on trial? God himself says, I'm going to show up and I will stand before you and, and answer these charges. And what they want to know is, is God with us or not? And God says, watch. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel and called the place Massa and Meribah. That just means uh, testing and bringing charges, actually. Because the Israelites quarreled, the Israelites brought formal charges and they tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? What more can you ask for than the judge putting himself on trial? As you look at all the difficult and awful things that have happened in this place, what more can you ask for than the creator of the world say, I'm going to put myself on trial? What more could you ask for than God becoming a human being and say, I'll put myself on trial? God's saying, I'll take the nails, I'll take the spear in the side, I'll take your sins, and I'll put myself on trial for your salvation. I really don't have an answer for the really bad stuff. I don't. I mean sin, obviously. I don't know why uh, babies die. I don't know why. I mean sin, but I, I... and when you want to say, God, give me an answer, or you say, God, give me an answer when my marriage is falling apart. God, give me an answer why my parents died so young. God, give me an answer where I, uh, one of my children died. God, give me an answer why my spouse is dead. God, give me an answer for Aurora. God, give me an answer for 9-11. What more can you ask for than a God that says, I'm a fine, infinite being, and I come to your earth, and I'll suffer death for your good? All you can ask for in our world is just a little bit of perspective, and in heaven, will be high enough to see why it all makes sense. Amen.